Good morning and happy Pentecost Sunday to you all. Thank you. Can I get a happy Pentecost? All right. In order for us to start off on the right foot, as we say, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. O God, whom we long to know, burning fire within our souls, grant to us the tongues like fire, the sound of rushing wind, your descending Holy Spirit, that in knowing your word we might know your presence, that in following your ways we might live in your light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There are three big questions implanted in every human being. For those of you in the room who are human beings, see if these ring true. Number one, who am I? Number two, where do I fit? And number three, what difference do I make? Who am I? What is my identity? What is it that makes me me? That's question number one. And where do I fit? Where do I belong? Who are my people? What group makes up the we in which I want to be included? That's question number two. And finally, what difference do I make? What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What is the point of the me that I am and of the we of which I am a part? What difference do I make? Or do I even make a difference? These three questions appear to be implanted in every person, regardless of gender, nationality, or generation. Of course, the questions are more alive as we go through our teenage and emerging adult years, but they never leave us, I don't think. As we age, we don't think about them as often, which is probably appropriate, but every now and then, we find ourselves at a crossroad in life, or, we're, or, or we find ourselves faced with tremendous grief or suffering, or we find ourselves facing death. And that's when the questions resurface anew. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference do I make? I'm a Christian today because of the way Jesus Christ answered these questions for me. As I have drilled down into the Christian faith, I have discovered a vast treasury of wisdom relating to these three questions. Who am I? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am the beautiful artwork of the divine artist. I am an image bearer of the creator God. I am the beloved son of a good, good father. Do you know who you are? And where do I fit? I fit in the community of Jesus' followers. I belong to the communion of saints spanning every continent and country, every race and language, every generation and every century. Ultimately, I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know where you fit. But what difference do I make? That's the question we will be exploring today. In fact, that's the question we've been bringing before God throughout this sermon series called Charisma, Spiritual Gifts of Grace. What difference do we make? Thus far, we've called upon the Apostle Paul and the disciple Peter for help. That is, we've studied the four scripture passages that directly mention spiritual gifts. In this fifth week, we call upon Jesus, our master teacher. Jesus frames his response to this question in the form of a parable. As you recall, a parable is a teaching story. It's a story about ordinary things which inform us about deeper spiritual things. 
Often the parables contain an element of surprise. Through parables, and this is important, Jesus often shocks us into faith and action. So without further ado, I present to you Jesus. Hear the good news of Jesus according to Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 and following. Reading from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on a journey. After the man left, the servant who had five talents took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two talents gained two more. But the servant who had received the one talent, he, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his money there. He buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward with five additional talents. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents, and look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one talent came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown, and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, so that when I returned, you could give what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him who had the one talent, and give it to the one who had ten talents. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now, take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is the word of the Lord. What does this parable stir up in you? As you hear it, does it bring you joy? Knowing that you are like the servant with five talents who made five more. Or does it bring you anxiety? After hearing the message, use it or lose it, from the master to the servant who buried his talent. What does this parable stir up in you? As you hear it, are you filled with gratitude, 
bursting with praise as you listen to the Spirit of God declare over you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you shocked by the abrasive judgment of Jesus? What does this parable stir up in you? It's in our best interest to pay attention to this stirring. Whatever it is, whether it makes us encouraged or uncomfortable or terrified, or a combination of all three. We need to stop fidgeting in our seats. We need to try to keep our attention from wandering. This often is a way that we distract ourselves from the unsettling words of Jesus. Instead, let us just be still before God and admit whatever has stirred us. Sit with it, honest to God, for a minute. Let's start from the top, as we try to make sense of how Jesus' parable helps us understand the answer to the question, what difference do I make? Verse 14, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. Who is the man of which Jesus speaks? The man refers to Jesus himself. In particular, it refers to the risen and ascended Jesus. Jesus has left us physically, as we stated in the statement of faith, and has left us with his spirit. But him leaving physically is like a man leaving on a trip, and so our parable reads. But he will return to settle accounts. Or as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, we have been given gifts. And the text doesn't say it here, but the gift beyond all other gifts is what Pentecost is all about. It is the gift of the? Yes. So this leads us into the second part of verse 14. This describes what happened before he went on the trip to his father in heaven. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. There's something in this sentence that we must not gloss over. Otherwise, we will read the parable all wrong. It's the title of these three servants. What are they called? I just gave it away. It's the title of these three people. What are they called? They are called his servants. In fact, the Greek emphasizes this even more. The Greek doesn't just say that he summoned his servants, but it literally says he summoned his own servants. This added modifier puts all debates to rest. The parable describes three believers. Did you hear what I just said? The parable describes three believers, and that's the shock of it. Remember, parables often shock us into faith and action. So these are three of Jesus' own servants, at least in name. It's not that the first two are Christian and the third an atheist. That would make the parable a little more comfortable for us. The shock of the parable is that all three, at least in name, are believers. So that muddies the waters even more, but let's keep the boots moving forward though the ground be muddy. Now we have the servants in view. And then verse 15. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. And we already see a key reformation principle at work. Grace precedes responsibility. 
Do you see that? (laughs) It's the master who gives these talents before the servants do anything at all. This can be easy to miss, but grace precedes responsibility. These folks aren't earning their talents, are they? They're given their talents before they do anything at all. These are grace gifts. And the next line is also important. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. Now, does that line, according to each one's ability, sound familiar? If you've been with us, I, I, hope it, I hope it does, because this same idea is found in all four passages we've looked at so far in our series. Ephesians 4, God has given his grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. Romans 12, God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you, and on and on we go. The point is this, each one of us has received from the Lord Jesus gifts. Grace precedes responsibility for each one of us. And the gift that we've been given is not too confusing for us to figure out. It's not too burdensome for us to use, but it's a gift that fits who we are. Each of us has been given strengths and aptitudes and opportunities that we are more than capable of immediately putting to use, as the first two servants demonstrate by their own examples. I'm not just talking about in the church. I'm talking about everywhere, in all of life. So this matches up with what Jesus said earlier in Matthew. And you may remember this, and in fact, I didn't know that uh, Chad was going to use that, but it is the, the verse he used for the call to worship. So I think God especially wants us to hear that today. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke my requirement is easy and my burden is light friends as we read this parable we must remember that jesus has not placed on our shoulders heavy requirements by gifting us with talents and gifts and strengths if it feels heavy then we're not doing it right. Rather, Jesus has given to each according to one's ability, and it is a beautiful, fulfilling thing to live your strengths. That's what the first two servants recognize. When they each receive talents from the master, each in a way that fit who they are, they gladly put these gifts to use right away, as soon as the master is gone. They recognize grace for what it is. They understand that not only does grace precede responsibility, but grace also presumes responsibility. This is a two-sided coin of grace. This is the sort of responsibility that always comes with a dash of joy, joyful responsibility, we could call it. And that's because that's the view of the, the, of the first two servants. They have this view because they have a right view of God, who, according to James, gives generously to all without finding fault. And so they work hard, not because they are trying to earn God's love or acceptance, but because they know that God's love is already theirs. They want to work for the one who has given up everything for them. It is like the child who rests secure in the father's acceptance 
and so runs the race with fullness of joy. This point is so important for us to get. So an illustration is in order. The movie Chariots of Fire comes to mind. Does any, any of you know that movie? came out in 1981. Oh, you should rent it at the library. Watch it today. I'm serious. <laughs> it's based on the true story of a Christian named Eric Liddell, a runner. Eric was a man of deep religious conviction, and he held a strong view of Sabbath keeping. Now, it was in Paris at the 1924 Summer Olympics where he refused to run in his best event. Any athletes out there, if you have a best event, would you refuse to run it at the Olympics? <laughs> the 100 meters, that was his best event. However, the first heat of the 100 meters was held on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. So instead of running, Eric felt compelled to worship Jesus at church and to withdraw from running in his best event. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. There was another Olympic race held on a weekday, and that was the 400 meters. This wasn't his strong suit, but it would have to do. In the end, Eric did all right. In fact, here's an actual picture of him. He's the one on the left winning the gold medal in the 400, thanks be to God. But what I find most memorable about his story, this is a true story, is something that Eric said in relation to this deep question we all face, this quest for meaning, for knowing what difference we make. Here are Eric's, or sorry, Eric, I keep calling him Eric, his name's Ryan. <laughs> Ryan Liddell. Here is Ryan's own words. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. That's the way of the first two servants. That's the view of God that naturally leads in to a life of fulfillment and purpose and pleasure. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. That's the full understanding of grace. That the grace of God always precedes responsibility, but it also presumes responsibility follows. And having responsibility is actually good news. It means that we make a difference. All of our decisions and activities and thoughts hold weight in God's eyes. And in the end, when Liddell and we who follow his example remain faithful in the little things, we will hear those wondrous words from our kind Father, words that produce such inner joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Everything in this life, by the way, consists of little things. I'm not talking about perfection in life, but we progress as we pray and relate to God personally as we try to remain faithful in the little things. But things are different for the third servant when the master returns, and he will return. The third servant, too, received grace. It wasn't too confusing for him to figure it out or too burdensome for him to use. Remember Matthew 11, but the talent he received fit perfectly with who he was. 
realizing this, and this is important to realize, we come to see that the master, his final judgment was actually quite fair. In fact, it seems like the master would have judged favorably even if the dude would have only invested the money in the bank. How hard is it really to put money into a bank? Jesus' yoke truly is easy and his burden truly is light. If only we grasp the nature of the God Jesus reveals. But this third servant could not see God as God really is. And so we see that it's not about the outward action that prompted judgment. It never is. Rather, the outward action of burying the money in the ground reflected an inner condition of his heart. It always does. There, deep in his heart, he could not trust God. He could not trust God because his concept of God was propped up by all these false ideas that he did not get from Jesus. That's the real reason for his inactivity. And that's the same reason I believe people, even Christians, still bury their talents in the ground. So what are these false ideas that this third servant had about God that led to his indifference and his inactivity? Why did he fail to use what he was given for the benefit of others? The key to this question is in verse 24. Now the one who had received one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you are a hard man, says the third servant. This is the servant's false concept of God. In fact, when, when uh, the master returns and repeats back what the, what the servant said, he does not include this line about being a hard man. Most people think because God is not a hard man. And by hard man, I think it has, has two different uh, nuances to that meaning. There's two different aspects of, of that meaning hard in the Greek. And if we have either of these aspects, we will have a misconception of God and it will ruin our lives. (laughs) Friends, that is always the case with misconceptions of God. They ruin our lives. So what does the servant mean when he calls the master a hard man? The Greek word for hard, uh, don't look at that. I'm not going to, this looks really complicated on the the screen. (laughs) When the the Greek says hard, the word is, is skleros, all right? Now, Dr. Bruner, uh, who, who writes up there uh, what I don't want you to read right now, uh, he talks about these two aspects of the meaning. One meaning of hard is, is strong. Uh, and so you could mean that you know, someone's a hard man, meaning they're a strong man, they're a, they're a stern man, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're sovereign in a way, we might say. And the second meaning of hard is, is harsh or cruel, perhaps even mean or unfeeling. And I think both senses are indicated in the the third servant's view of God. So we'll talk about the first one with using the term hypersovereign. The servant has a false concept of God in that he believes God to be hypersovereign. He's halfway to the truth. 
He believes rightly that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign. However, he believes wrongly about the way God chooses to use this power. The full truth, in my reading of the New Testament and in the Reformed tradition, is this. God is, God is all-powerful, and God chooses to demonstrate that power primarily through the church. God is all-powerful, and God chooses to work out this powerful through us, showering us with gifts, the greatest of which is love. God is all-powerful, and God chooses to empower his servants with the Holy Spirit. If we, view, if we don't have this, this, this both-and, we'll end up with a view like the servant, that God is a hard man, that God is hyper-sovereign, that God doesn't need me, and therefore I can just bury my talent and do nothing. It's half right. God doesn't need you, but God chooses you to work out his purposes because of God's deep desire for that relationship of loving trust with you. Do you get that? God chooses to work his power through us. Why? Because he desires a relationship of trust. The third servant can't comprehend this. He can't comprehend such relationality from God, that God could be so personal, so immediately available as he lives out his daily life. And so it follows quite naturally that he doesn't trust God. He fears God, our text says, but he doesn't trust or love him. So we learn that it's possible to fear God without loving him. You may want to turn that one over in your mind later. The end result is a servant who spends a bit of effort sidestepping his responsibility by burying the talent and then justifying himself with a theologically sophisticated argument about sovereignty. That's the first aspect of the meaning of his statement, I knew you to be a hard man. I pray that every one of us learns from his mistakes. The second aspect of the servant's false concept of God is that God is harsh, even cruel. This view is far too common in the Western world, and it's ruining our lives. This view imagined God as an angry parent, never satisfied with his children. This view fails to relate God's wrath to God's love. But when you peel back the layers... I think you discover that God's wrath is really all about God's love. God's wrath, rightly understood, is an act of love. It shows that God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. But when we take the idea of God's wrath out of the context of God's love, we end up with the view of the third servant. God quickly becomes harsh and mean, even cruel, if not to us, then certainly to others. And it's really difficult to trust anyone who is cruel, at least for anything practical. The result is that no matter what we do, we end up feeling like we can never do enough. We always expect the divine eyes of disappointment to find us out, glaring at us, 
This false concept of God is just waiting for us to mess up, ready to pounce on us, ready to mark up the paper of our lives with thick lines of red pen. In the end, this false God declares about us what we thought we knew all along. F. Failure. Friends, is that how you think God sees you? Is that the God Jesus reveals to us? If Jesus is the perfect image of God, we must ask ourselves, do we see this idea of God in the life of Jesus as we read the Gospels? I don't think so. I'm not saying that Jesus is a cuddly teddy bear without words of judgment and correction. This parable alone is enough to expose that misconception. But I am saying that God does not deal with his children harshly. As James said earlier, God gives generously without finding fault. God offers grace and love long before he sees us perform. There is no hateful bone in God's body, as we say. Imagine the best of human fathers. Friends, God is so much greater than that. As the repeated refrain in the Old Testament goes, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Of course, in the New Testament, we see God revealed in Jesus on the cross, the judge judged in our place, drinking the cup of wrath intended for our own judgment. Nothing disorients and reorients us to the wrath and love of God quite like the cross. But that's not the God the third servant believes in. I knew you to be a harsh man, so I was afraid, he says. Need I remind you of the verdict he received? You evil and lazy servant, take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. In an ironic twist, the third servant in the parable actually gets what he expected— He gets the sort of God he expected. I wonder whether his view of God becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy for him. On this point, the words of the great C.S. Lewis jump off the page of his book, The Great Divorce. He writes, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So what are we to do? What's the application of Jesus' parable on the talents as we leave this place to do? I I hope I made it clear that the application is not the message we hear so often. Try harder. That message can actually keep us stuck forever. It's actually part of a misconception of God. So please, please forgive me if I ever come across as perpetuating this message of just saying, try harder. This is mere moralism. In light of the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, it should be added that this is precisely the message the Reformers fought so hard to expose as deceptive and life-sucking. We can't try harder because we are dead in sin, and dead people can't try. We don't just need a pep talk, we need resurrection. For this reason, I think the application has to do with our hearts. The 16th century Heidelberg Catechism is our friend here. 
arising from the Reformation, this teaching tool reminds us that no amount of our good works, no amount of our putting our talents to use will earn our salvation. Our good works merit nothing, it says. Grace precedes responsibility. But it follows by adding the second component of grace, saying, I want you to read this with me, say it with me, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ through true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. In other words, grace also presumes responsibility. And responsibility means that we make a world of difference as we remain faithful in the little things. So what's left for us to do but to pray? To pray for the Lord to resurrect our dead hearts and every place of sin within us. To pray for the Lord to transform and renovate our inner beings. To pray for the Lord to bring new life and new light to every area of our heart that's like the third servant. Every area that's living in death and darkness. Yes, Lord, we pray for you to reveal to us the true God. Send your spirit of grace and truth into our spirits, O Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. God likes to answer these sorts of prayers. It is God's good pleasure. And so when we hear that answer worked out in our lives, we will notice that quite naturally we produce fruits of gratitude. By the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives will make a difference. And in the end, we shall hear when our Master Jesus returns, Well done, good and faithful servants. Come, celebrate with me. Amen.